Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Full Stack Leader Podcast. This week, I'm excited to have my longtime friend and old colleague, Hutan Nikbakht, with us. He is currently the CTO of Lucky Day, an application that is available on iOS and Android. And Hutan, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you, Rhett. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah. So I know we had a chance to work together at a company called Bursley in the past, which was a great startup in the ad tech and developer tool set environment. And I know that you've worked with a number of startups over the course of time. Maybe give us a little bit of a rundown about how you got to where you're at. Absolutely. My journey with technology has started with pre-iPhone days. When I was at UCLA, I remember the days where we Apple just came out with uh, iPhone and we were discussing how great this technology could be. and Really, this pre-Web 2.0, building any sort of applications that tie to APIs. And uh, I remember the days of the mashups and a lot of products being built, connecting to one another. And that's where I had my real excitement and passion for building products and just dabbling with the mobile uh, applications I started. From there, I finished my undergrad at UCLA, did an internship at IBM for about two years, uh, finished my master while I was at IBM and from there worked for full-time. This was during 2009 where the market crash happened. I was with IBM working with very strong colleagues and team members. When I joined at IBM, I worked at a team that was recently got acquired by IBM and uh, part of that team, I was able to grow with uh, working with really stellar team members. And from there, I wanted to learn more about startups. And I wanted to get involved with uh, smaller companies. I wanted to learn how to build products from the ground up, not only the technology, but really the entire business departments, how technology and the different departments cross-function work together. So I started working at a company called Generation Wireless, Gen Y it was called. I was a third engineer. It was a very exciting opportunity to just be able to learn technology from the ground up and work with new technologies without anybody helping me, without having very senior peers around me to help me. Or And that was a very successful journey. I was with Gen Y for uh, some time. This is all in Northern California until I wanted to move back mm-hmm. to Los Angeles. And that's where I joined Bursley. And I got to work with you as the first person at Bursley. And, um, that was also a very exciting journey. Extremely exciting company. Lots of talented engineers. Gen Y was a very small, I would say 10 to 20 person company. And I moved to Bursley, which was, I think, at the point was like 50 people and quickly grew to 100 plus people. We got experience with big corporations, small startup, and, and then Bursley, a mid sized company, until we got acquired by Apple. From there, I worked for, moved on to work for another startup, which I was the first engineer. And I even took a step back and wanting to work with even a smaller team, wanting to really take over the technology portion and just be involved on all aspects of development. And I was with Telefy for a while. We built an exciting product that eventually launched an event detection system that uh, was basically what the Snapchat maps were two years before it launched. And from there, we built a the trend detection system uh, is a B2B product that was uh, very well received by a lot of businesses. And uh, But my journey moved on and I started working on really my own product. I started building 
a product called Ristocracy, which was really a Kelly Blue Book for luxury watches. How are you able to get price comparison for luxury watches? What the yeah, I'll say. And, yeah. and from there, I arrived at my journey with Lucky Day, which became a very ex- big and exciting opportunity and grow in my role. In all my roles, I was a developer. In, in this role was the first time that I went from a developer to an engineering manager role. And I, I have to say this transition in role was probably the biggest step in my career. Were you, w- would you say that you were already kind of into understanding how game engines work even before you went to UCLA or, or did it, was that something that you like became passionate about a little bit later in your career? I was generally very excited about technology, building products and services, not necessarily specific to game engines and games in general. I was actually very interested in hardwares and actually embedded systems. And that's how I started my journey into technology, just learning about how embedded systems and hardwares are actually set up and how it interacts with software. And that's where I basically started my uh, career. And later I realized my passion is in software and from software, I basically find myself in, in, in a place where I saw that I like technology, but I like portion of the technology that I like is, is the overlap with uh, creativity. And that's where I found myself even more passionate with gaming. And that's where I kind of dabbled in uh, game engines and, and building expertise around building mobile games. Yeah. Games are really like a great combination of that true creative storytelling interaction experience with actually interesting technology that allows a lot of decision making to happen throughout it. I can see why you might be into might be into that process. What was the first game that you actually worked on? The game the first game actually that I worked on was that in terms of building the game was uh, Lucky Day and uh, mm-hmm. and that was the very first game that uh, I started working with. This is a game that was uh, Post-launch, I joined the team and, and I was able to help get into a point that it, it, it become a, a very sticky game and that all, all users wanted to use it in, in, in the app store. That's amazing. I know before you even got to Lucky Day, you and I worked at a company where you were doing SDK integrations for ad platforms and um, developer tool sets into a lot of bigger games, right? Absolutely. I think my journey was... Technology started uh, with a few startups, and one of the startups was uh, with you at Varsity, where I started working on really the backing portion of what is powering a lot of these games in terms of uh, getting mm-hmm. the, the ad engine and ad network uh, to be able to monetize uh, the games out there, and, and generally products that are closer to games. Yeah, and I, I know that was all the way back in around, you know, 2012, 2013 and and that range. And a lot's actually changed in the development of the mobile gaming um, environments. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen from back then to now in terms of the evolution? I think with mobile gaming, there there definitely been a lot of changes in the way that the type of games that are launched are out there from more mid-core to uh, hardcore now to hyper-casual and really quicker games from uh, lots of studios. And now I think we're seeing a lot of activities in the uh, real money gaming. And and that's where we are uh, basically, that's where the area that we are working on. And I think hyper-casual is where we've seen the most uh, amount of activities. And in terms of monetization portion of these games, I would say 
this industry has changed uh, quite a bit from mediations to waterfall system to header bidding. It is now also a popular way of monetization on the outside uh, for a lot of games. And we can see that the ad, basically the ad industry is, is growing uh, quite a bit. On the growth side, I would say we are seeing the changes that uh, Apple has been made and that, that I think is to, in a big way impacted uh, the industry. And smaller studios are not able to thrive as, as they used to. And, and that is really kind of a high level change that I see in, in this space. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that over the course of time, the ad networks and ad industries have driven a lot of the evolution um, of the games themselves of like different toolkits that have to be in there and the, the ways that they have to work? Or do you think that the publishers are driving it and the ad networks are constantly adjusting? I would say it's it's a great question. I think it's a two-sided kind of part that is tied to each other. Publishers are successful when they can uh, grow their apps successfully and where the users can download and be able to use the apps. We've seen evolution in the ad space where publishers are able to advertise a game that is somewhat of their own game, but they're necessarily not the same game. And, and solely to get traction uh, and, and response from the users, one of the ways that the publishers are testing the market is to put out ads and see what kind of response for the type of ad they put out. This kind of ad might not be related to the type of game they've published. It's really just tied to how the market responds. And based on the response that they've seen from uh, the market, it kind of dictates what the publisher might want to release next or how they want to really tweak their games. And so I think it's overall, they're tied to each other. And again, ad space, I think, is uh, having a major impact on the way we've grown and we've decided uh, in terms of our product roadmap. Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's interesting to see how you're moving from kind of the, the core proficiency of ad integrations to drive monetization. And you're now exploring actual real money gaming. You are, Lucky Day is a casino app. so. It's been able to develop over the course of time without actually integration of money. But now that you are doing money, I imagine there's a ton of challenges as a CTO um, working into uh, a world where you have to follow the rules of the platforms. Is that correct? Yes. So I think this is also a great area to expand on. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of people will look at the, the industry as a whole as gambling, and I think what's important is that. There are rules, obviously, around how real money gaming and general, how the type of games that are free to play and there's some sort of payouts in the game are set up. I think to really break it down, there are the type of games that you would have in the market are pure gambling game of chance. Uh, you would have or you would have sweepstake games or you could have game of skills. Game of chance are considered poker, blackjack, and in the, in these type of games are purely illegal. Uh, they are in the market, they are available in the store and you can free to play the game and you can still earn money, but you can't really have any sort of, you can't really deposit any money into the games. Uh, sweepstakes style games, similar, you can free to play, you can win money. And that's where actually what Lucky Day, uh, how Lucky Day uh, was able to grow and, and our category was considered sweepstake. And I think the category that uh, we, we've seen similar growth and, and, and I think is, I look at it as an emerging market is game of skills and game of skills is really turning any game into 
a, a tournament or a competition-based game and allows for users to actually deposit money into the games and that can and this is an avenue for for a lot of companies like us to be able to switch gear and knowing learning about the market be able to launch games that are really not chance based and really uh, they're they're skills based are there challenges that you face thinking about having to manage extensive transactions across the world to be able to allow these to play and are there rules even within different countries that you have to manage to we're yes, there are challenges in terms of the type of challenges you're dealing with. Security, fraud, and user privacy is probably the biggest challenges that you, any yeah. sort of company and application will have to be considering when they enter in this space. In terms of geolocation, we're only functioning in the United States, and what and anything outside of the United States, basically you have to follow their local jurisdiction and. Uh, so that's we, our, our main focus is with the United States. And yes, the United States, certain states, based on geolocation, you're allowed to do to the transactions. And so that our app is basically, our basically system is built in a way that we can see where users are. And based on that, we can see if the user is allowed to enter a game or not. The type of security and fraud challenges are to make sure that if you're allowing the user to play your game, that they are, uh, you know, you do proper KYC. You, you need to make sure that you're uh, following a correct anti-money laundering law. And you need to make sure that you are, uh, if you're getting any sort of payment data from the user into your system, you're following certain compliance like PCI, SOC, that is that protect the user data. We've set up in everything in a way that this does not require any sort of sensitive data from the user and everything is hosted on the, the third party payment service, payment gateway and payment processing services that we adopt. I think the biggest challenge also is to integrate with the correct payment partners. And, and that I think is also a challenge on its own. So as a leader, as a technical leader, how do you inspire like people on your team to make the decisions that make the most sense for for your applications. You have to make decisions on third-party vendors to use. You have to make decisions on different types of platforms to, to go with. How do you work with team members to, to get the, the right consensus on decisions? Absolutely. A great question, Ryan. Uh, in, in my uh, experience uh, the past few years, I've learned a lot in terms of how to approach problems. And the way I've been approaching it from the beginning was to be very opinionated and coming from a developer background, I always wanted to come up with the solutions myself, and, and that's something that's something that I learned to grow out of and allow my team to basically think and uh, make a lot of the decision and come up with a lot of the design decisions on their own. The way we're di we're dividing the work today is that in terms of system design, in terms of architecture design, all designs and decisions are done upfront, and it's done by my team and not by me at all. This gives power to the entire team to work together, come up with a, a design and approach, present the design and approach. We all sign off, we discuss it. Everything uh, looks good from all, uh, all sides. Then we start developing. This has been very successful for us in terms of uh, building the right technology and building the right product. In terms of third-party services, this is something that decide on our executive side and uh, we share with the team and with, but the team uh, can also do suggestions. When, when it comes to payment partners, we solely decide those decisions on the executive side. When it comes to 
third-party integrations that we have options to go with. We present options and we, we allow our team to also present their options and we come at, at a solution. That's great. So when your team members come to you with system design ideas and um, concepts for new approaches to product elements, do you have a specific way that you've worked with them to bring those ideas to you or are you pretty open? Do you find that flexibility and communication is important? We, in terms of framework and how we surface uh, good ideas and how we basically discuss design ideas is we, when it comes to software delivery methodologies, we have ceremonies when it comes to software delivery and we follow Scrum methodology. We, in, within those ceremonies, we uh, basically have additional ceremonies where we discuss and surface additional ideas and additional technologies or anything that the team wants to adopt to the table. We I have weekly engineering hours with all my teams. And within the engineering hours, we have time to surface these ideas and anything that the team wants and wants to discuss. We give voice in those meetings to everyone. And, and even every quarter, we ask uh, the team members within one-on-ones, lead, uh, team leads, if they want to adopt new technology and if there's something that they come across that is exciting. And we've been able to adopt like, a lot of technology, new technologies while I was at Lucky Day. We went from a monolith application to a completely microservices architecture with, with NoSQL data store, from relational to NoSQL data store. And, and we've been able to build products that I think scales to millions of users. And also, and along the way, we've been able to learn and grow. I think at this point, I would say my team are working on the technologies that they were wanting to work on and wanting to learn and grow and building their craft. I hope that, uh, that answered your question. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that rundown. It was uh, really enlightening. And I appreciate you taking the time to share with us both your career and, and what you're doing at Lucky Day. It sounds like uh, you guys are really making some moves into some um, great things. During my connection with Hutan, I was reminded that tech leadership is a true blend of pushing the edges of innovation while actively motivating the team. His experience in startup development offers a great look into some of the unique product and technical challenges that a CTO has to consider. And how the tech organization splits that work up to get the most efficient delivery is part of the artistry of leadership. Welcome back. Right now, we're going to turn our attention to Hutan's top five leadership tips that he wants to share with us. So Hutan, let's jump in right away. What's your number one tip? My tip number one is uh, building trust. Trust is mm. uh, foundational to every successful team, for every successful startup. I think the, this entire world is actually built based on trust. And that is the most important thing. If you're looking to find your co-founder, if you're looking to find building team in general, just make sure that you are building trust with your team and that's where you are going to really see the most success. Is, is there a specific way you like to try and build trust with, with the team that you're guiding? Do you have like, a, you go out and do special events with them or do you, is there a way that you're working with them that you think helps create that? Trust is built, from my perspective, trust is built over time as you start working together and as you start uh, basically building this bridge with your peers and with your teammates. I think the way you build trust, uh, from my perspective, is when you're joining a team, the biggest thing that I think for you to build trust within that team is to work 
the hardest. As hard as you can work to make sure that you are earning everyone's trust and you're able to show that you belong to that team and go with the mindset of helping your team. And I think that is one way to build a good trust when you're entering a team. And But I think overall trust is built over time and through hard work that can be proven. Amazing. Awesome. All right. What about tip number two? What do you got for us? Tip number two is uh, all my tips are tied to one another. Trust is when you're starting small with a team. Number two is building relationships. I think you have to be able to enjoy the ride with your colleagues and with your peers as you guys are working together. This is foundational uh, for every team and has shown great success from, from my side, building relationship with your team and colleagues. The way you do it is really just get to know your care about your teammates, know who they are, where they come from, just discuss other things than just work and just get to know them at the personal level, just yeah. understand what are their values and what makes them tick. And that's, I think, where you really build chemistry and you can really not only do great work, but also enjoy the ride with your, with your peers. Just like you and I are having a good relationship, right? Yep, absolutely. All right, awesome. What about tip number three? Tip number three, I think, is uh, really as the team grows and you have to have a great culture. Culture is extremely important as the team scales. You have to have some theme within the company, theme or a culture, if you call it. I think it's the same from my perspective. It is very important for a company to scale and to really have some belief and core value within that company. A lot of companies have their core values and mission, and that could be the culture. But I think it really comes from the team and comes from the people of the company that are that the theme and the culture is built and can and the company can scale. Yeah, I remember when we were working at Bursley, there I felt like there was an amazing culture that had been cultivated there, and it had a lot of flavor and life to it, and. I know, I know just witnessing how that was constructed with them influenced a lot of like how I do things today and think about culture as well. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Okay. Tip number four, what do you got? Tip number four is to get everyone to contribute. As a leader, your job is not to tell everyone what to do, is to be able to mobilize everyone in your team. You do have team members that are lead within your team. That, that basically coordinate things and actually can move the product development or whatever that the, your team is working on forward. But what's very important is that how are you as a leader can get yourself out of the equation and just have your team be involved on every corner. Ways to do this is to show to your entire team where the company is headed, where is value and how is this product or feature that they're working on creates value. And uh, it could be something that can directly impact revenue. This could be something that can help streamline certain uh, part of your product. Whatever it is, it's important to show why the work is important. That's one way. Uh, another way is to basically give them voice, making sure that they are allowed to make decisions. They are allowed to, in, in a lot of teams, uh, some team members that are in the junior or mid-level side, sometimes they're shy or they're not yet confident to really uh, discuss. So you want to give them voice. You want to make sure that they are able to talk and everyone listens to them. 
and and you usually want to make sure that again build uh, some make them comfortable in, in 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 that setting. That has been helpful for us, and obviously you have to motivate them to make sure that they are serious about practicing their craft. That will allow everyone to know where they're going and allows them to basically level up in their team. Yeah, I really like this this one that you're sharing about because I think that it really talks about what a CTO does above like maybe just an engineering manager. And that's really open up the ability for engineers to actually engineer solutions. One of the things I really like about what we just said is like looking at what a kind of more green engineer who's who doesn't have the confidence yet or like the experience, they need a little bit more support to like start to believe in their ability to actually work towards the solutions that are going to move the needle and just opening that up for them is huge. Absolutely. Building confidence in your team is probably the number one thing I would say helped our team members do better and uh, really believing that they, they, they can actually do better and they can grow uh, within their role. And that has been also foundational, I think, from all type, different teams that I work with and within this current team that I'm working with. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Okay. Last one. Tip number five. Tip number five is giving your team a certain level of freedom in terms of, I think there are two ways to approach this in terms of, I look at it as freedom or, or let, allow them to be creative. I think mm-hmm. you have to give yourself, give your team the confidence to wanting to improvise in certain areas. And if they want to explore certain approaches, you give them the freedom to do what they like to do when it comes to building a feature, when it comes to choosing a technology in certain areas that you know that they are allowed to make certain decisions that you should give them that freedom. Yeah. An example of it is we might want to be building an internal tool or certain things that or some tool that is important or building a service that could basically be open source. Uh, your team member comes and asks, hey, I'm working on this. I can just reconfigure this and I can make it an open source and it could be good for the company. It shows that we are contributing to the to the community. And those are some of the things that we've done and has been great for us in terms of basically contributing to the community and also allowing our team members to do what they uh, wanted uh, outside the scope of, of the work. And I think freedom and creativity, I think that's something that I would say is uh, extremely important to make sure that the team, they feel that they actually are working on some of the things that they enjoy working on as well. All right. Amazing. Thank you for the top five tips and your look at being a CTO at a mobile gaming company. It's really amazing view. We appreciate you joining us today, Hutan. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much. Hutan does a great job of sharing the importance of balancing a tech team's need to dive on specificity while still staying apprised of the bigger vision. By building trust with his group, he uses the ever-strengthening team relationships to inspire contribution. Hutan knows that, especially in a startup environment, buy-in, experimentation, and overall contribution are central to getting the most out of engineers that might be pushing the boundaries of what is possible, no matter the industry.